So I know that we just started a series in 2 Peter, but we're actually hitting pause in that series. Um, and, and it's a special opportunity for me because maybe some of you, some new faces, maybe you don't know that I'm Andrew Franklin. I'm not the senior pastor here at Solano Community Church, but my title is Director of City Mission. And that's significant because even the fact that that title exists within this church, it says a lot about the values of this church and, and the, the ways that we want to be asking the question constantly, what is our city mission? What is the, the relationship with this local church to the, the city, and, and broadly defined, not just Albany, but the entire East Bay, the entire San Francisco Bay Area. You know, we have um, the church plant in San Francisco, uh, San Francisco Mission there with uh, Pastor Brent. And, and so the city broadly defined. And as I was doing some research this week, I found that a lot of Christians not just here at Solano, but a lot of Christians are asking the question of what is our city mission. And there's a big conversation that's been going on. Somebody sent me an article, and it sent me to Twitter, and it sent me to reading all these different blogs. And um, there's a big conversation that's going on about, you know, rough times have fallen on the church. You know, we talked about statistics that say that the San Francisco Bay Area is by far the most unchurched place in America, and, and people are talking about, you know, we've lost the culture wars, and, um, and, and that not only is this place unfriendly, but in many ways the San Francisco Bay Area is just anti-Christian. And so a lot of people are asking a question about, you know, how do we deal with the world? I mean, how do we approach um, this place that in many ways we, we are seen as Christians, we are seen as Kind of this, this people that, you know, they're anti-science, they're kind of backwards, they're closed-minded. We don't even really want to deal with them too much. So do we assimilate? Do we choose to look like the world around us? Do we flee to Christian communities kind of off in the mountains and, and do the monastic community thing all over again? And, and people are asking this question, what is our approach? Or, or to borrow the, the term uh, from Francis Schaeffer, the book title that I love, how should we then live? So today we are going to approach this question, how should we then live? Not from any modern perspective, but we're going to be looking at an ancient one, uh, from the words of the prophet Jeremiah, um, written about 600 years before Jesus Christ was even born. So if you have a Bible, would you open to Jeremiah 29? If you need a Bible, if you would raise your hand, um, Kevin people will pass out Bibles to you. We may be uh, running low, there's... I think we've got a couple more Bibles back there. So open to Jeremiah 29. It's on page 449 in the Blue Bible, if you grab that on your way in. And we're going to be looking at um, a text that you may be surprised we're not looking at Jeremiah 29.11. Um, I know that's like a life verse for a lot of people. Maybe we'll hint at it a little bit, but don't be disappointed when we don't talk about Jeremiah 29.11. But, but how does Jeremiah, this ancient text, help us in the year 2015? And since we're kind of jumping into the middle of this book here, it's worth doing a little background, a little research, because it, it's going to help you understand some of the words that Jeremiah is saying. So the message that we are going to read is a message from God through the prophet Jeremiah, and it's being delivered to the people of Israel who are in exile in Babylon. Now, this is a key part, that they are people in exile. See, the Babylonians were the new world power. They had just kind of usurped the Assyrians as top dog, you know, kind of top of the pile. 
and they had just overthrown um, Assyria's capital city, Nineveh, which I'm sure you've heard that name from the book of Jonah. Um, and the Babylonians were led by King Nebuchadnezzar, pretty sweet name, and maybe you're familiar with that name. And, and so now Babylon had just turned their attention to the people in Israel. And they had just attacked and had a major defeat in the city, the capital city of Israel, in Jerusalem. Now, what I found really fascinating doing some reading about this is that a typical way that, that Babylon would kind of deal with a, a captive or uh, deal with a conquered city is that they would take a lot of the valuable artifacts from, from the temple and they would take a lot of things from the city. And, and yeah, there would be a lot of bloodshed and there'd be a lot of loss of lives. But when they would return to their home base, when they would go back to Babylon, they didn't come back with just treasure, but they actually took a lot of people with them. And they often took a lot of the elites, kind of the, the leaders in that society, they would bring them back with them. And some people think that they brought as many as 10,000 Jewish captives back to Babylon with them. And the reason that they did that, the Babylonians took these prisoners for the purpose of assimilation. The Babylonians wanted to erase the spiritual identity of the Jewish people. They wanted to get rid of their culture and, and to bring them completely into the Babylonian way of life. They, they found that that was the most peaceful way to live with these captives was just to get them to look just like you, to get rid of their religion, their dress, their food, to get them to wipe all that stuff out. So that is our audience to, to whom Jeremiah is writing. He's writing to this, this group of people, the people of God, the chosen people of God who have been defeated, who have been taken into exile, and they've survived these battles, and they're in this middle of the, these people who conquered them, right? Talk about putting salt in the wound. We defeated you, now we're going to make you live with us. And they're going to try to break them and take their cultural identity with them, or away from them. And what is significant is that this concept of being in exile that's actually a concept that is given to Christians in the New Testament. The, the opening sentence of uh, the book of 1 Peter, Peter calls the Christians exiles. And then he says later that they're sojourners and exiles. If you remember a few weeks back, and we were doing our napkin theology series, and we were, we were looking at the piece of after you come to believe, you take on this new identity as a citizen of heaven. Right? A citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And that means that while we live here in this earth, our identity is elsewhere. We belong to God's kingdom. So we are living here, but our citizenship is elsewhere. And so you see the parallels between Israel, that they are living in the middle of Babylon, these, these captives, but they still identify with their homeland, which is back in Jerusalem. So now we've done a little bit of the background and you can see now that the instructions that Jeremiah speaks for his people, the word of God through the prophet Jeremiah, you can see how this connects um, powerfully and persuasively from everything I can read. This is an incredibly persuasive way of living that applies to us today. So I'm going to read uh, just the first few verses here and then pause. So Jeremiah 29, like I said, verse, uh, page 449 in the Blue Bible. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King 
Jeconiah, and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers all departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisha, or Elisha, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So just a little background um, introducing this letter before we get into the letter. It's going to start in verse 4. And, and you see that you get a glimpse of that it was pretty brutal, right? It's even addressed to the surviving elders, right? This has been rough. So here's a message to the remnant. In the book that I'm sure some of you have read, um, The City of God is kind of the, the, the pinnacle writing of St. Augustine's career. And in the city of God, Augustine says that all of human history can be understood as a conflict between two cities, the city of God and the city of man. I actually think the full title in the Latin was the city of God against the pagan city of man or something like that. And in this writing, we find that Augustine says that it is the city of God and people who are generally classified in living for this city who who focus their lives on God, they live for the heavenly city, and they focus all their energy and all their efforts for for doing the things and and obeying the commandments of God, but it's the city of man that is a city built on prideful accomplishments, it's built on self-service, it's built on self-worth and pride, and Augustine, interestingly, says that Babylon is one of those cities that fits that type. He says one of the examples of the city of man is Rome is one of the examples and Babylon is the other example. And so you can see that God is giving this message to his people who have been killed in battle, defeated, captured, taken into exile, and they're put in the middle of this wicked land that is the epitome of self-service and what Augustine called the city of man, right? So what is God's message here? Is it a message of wreak havoc, poison the water? Maybe some of you saw that some chump who popped that dam that lost 50 million gallons of water or whatever that was, right? Is that what God's message is to the people going and do stuff like that? You know, maybe, you know, chip away at their infrastructure, break them down a little bit. He says, hate the city, segregate from the city, don't take any part of, of Babylonian life and culture. Is this a message of escape and, 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 you know, just bide your time until we can sneak out in the middle of the night and just leave Babylon behind? So let's see what God says to his people. Verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. It's surprising, right? Logically, we might have thought that would not be what God commands his people to do. Build houses, plant gardens, have kids, care for the city, have a really, really nice time there. 
And I think that when we see the connections between God's people in exile and the church today as God's people in exile, we will see that we are called to live in our cities the same way. And so to you, a people in a foreign land, to you whose citizenship is elsewhere, but you who dwell here in these cities, we're going to look at three traits of God's people in exile. And the first one is we are to be a present people. The second one we're going to see is that we are to be a productive people. And the third one is that we are to be a peacemaking people. So present, productive, peacemaking. Honestly, that all kind of came together naturally out of the text. I didn't really have to force that. God calls his people to be present, his people in exile to be present. Now, two brief observations on the text here. The first one is, is a phrase that you see in verse 4 and verse 6. Maybe you caught that. That Babylon is the, the nation who defeated them. Nebuchadnezzar is the king who led all of this. But who is the one that's actually in charge this whole time? Verse 4 says that God is the one who sent them into exile. Verse 7, again, repeats that. God says that I have sent you into exile. God is the one behind their exile. And this was certainly not a positive moment in the life of Israel, but God is still the one who is behind this. And it's not a story of a people who have just fallen in hard times, tragic, unfortunate circumstances. God sent them there because God had a purpose for their presence. And the second observation briefly on the text I want to make is that you see that God never reasons with his people or gives them good logic for why they should stay in Babylon. He doesn't say to them, you know, dwell there, but it's really not that bad. I mean, yeah, they, they defeated you and maybe they killed your grandparents and your kids, but if you give them a second chance, I think you'll really like it there. I mean, the views, the land, the food, it's a really nice place, right? I mean, they want to eliminate your culture, but don't take it personal. God's command to his exiled people is that they were present in that city, not some other city, not some make-believe version of some dumbed-down version of Babylon. It's, no, it's Babylon in all that it is wicked, in all that it stands for, in its pride, and its human accomplishments. That's the city I want you to be present in. And cities are, are very popular places today, right? I think if you've tried to find a place in the East Bay, whether you're looking to buy a house, whether you're looking to rent, you know that there is a lot of demand on houses and apartments here in the Bay Area. Maybe if you've seen the rental prices and the rates that have just skyrocketed in San Francisco and Oakland, and I saw somewhere that Oakland had the highest or the second highest you know, increase in cost of living last year in the entire country. And it wasn't that long ago we would forget that people were fleeing the cities. Right? It was maybe a little bit before my time, born in the 80s, but there are people who have been around a little bit longer than that. They will tell you that, that people were running out of the cities right? because of violence and drug use and poverty. People could not wait to get out to the suburbs. And you go back even further, you find all sorts of quotes I came across from Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin and Rousseau and all these, these intellectuals of the 18th century who said that more civilized, intelligent, you know, better people lived in the countryside. And the people who left or lived their lives in the cities, they were just 
kind of nuts. Like, why would you want to be in the cities? And I do think that, you know, maybe a lot of us that are living here, we say, well, that's a really old-fashioned way of looking at the cities, right? But, I mean, you go to other parts of the country. I mean, my family is all in Dallas, Texas now, and, and I, every time I go, somebody makes a joke about, like, oh, Berkeley, like, do they stone you for your religious beliefs there? <laughs> like, people are getting stoned, but it's for a whole different reason, right? <laughs> and so, so you see that God's command for, for people to live in a city, it, it doesn't depend on whether it's a, a good city or not whether it's a worthwhile city. It doesn't matter if it's cool and that, and that people want to live there. It doesn't matter if it's safe or unsafe or whether it's a conservative city or a liberal city. God does not take that into account when, when God sends his people into exile into Babylon. You see, God loves cities because that's where most of the people live. I mean, in America, 80% of the people of the population now is in urban centers. And for the first time in world history, more people live in cities than they do in the countryside. God loves cities because there are more human beings who bear his image in the cities than anywhere else. We see this at the end of Jonah, um, where God says to Jonah, he's looking at the great city of Nineveh, as it's called over and over God looks at the great city of Nineveh and says, should I not have compassion on this great city? And in the same breath, God says, there are 120,000 people there. I mean, that's a huge city for this time um, in an ancient city. And, And God is saying that I have compassion. Look how many people are there. Look how many people bear my image that are living there, that are lost without me. And so to to make this practical, the first question here is obvious. As Christians, will you be present in the city? Whether it is Oakland or Berkeley or Richmond or San Francisco, will you live in the city? Will you commit your life to the city? However long God says, okay, stay here. Would you pray about that? If you're a graduating student, I know the job market's tough, but would you prayerfully consider staying here after you finish school? Would you commit to a continued life with this church? We need you. Jay, we need you, man. I kind of forgot he was going to talk about leaving. I hope you don't feel guilty for that, but he'll come back. See, how you live in your city is usually determined by how long you're going to live in that city. I mean, think about you go on vacation, and, and you're going to be there, you know, five days, you know, ten days tops, Right? And the, the level of research that you do might consist of you go on Yelp and you find the best restaurants or you buy a tourist book and you go to all the cool tourist spots, right? But, but you're not going to look for long-term, deep relationships and invest in the life of that city, right? So what is our approach to the cities here? Are, are we taking the long view or are we taking the short view? And it's interesting because though it's not in these seven verses, we, we get a glimpse of that in this text where In the chapter before, Jeremiah 28, we see that there's a false prophet who says that, hey, you know, don't worry. Don't get too stressed about being in exile. It's only going to be two years. Don't don't worry about it being bad or anything like that. It's only going to be two years. And that prophet is shown to be a false prophet. And it says that Jeremiah prophesied that he was going to die that year. And sure enough, he died a couple months later. And, And then later... 
The true view is that in Jeremiah 29, okay, here's where Jeremiah 29, 11 is, right? It does say that, that God has a plan for his people. God has a plan that his people would prosper, that they would have a hopeful future, right? But it comes right after the sentence that says, I have 70 years set aside for you in exile. 70 years, and that's the hopeful vision. You will be returned to your home, and I have a purpose for you then, but I have a purpose for you now also. And some of you are already committed to the city, long-term. Maybe you've bought homes here. And the question for you is, is, do you love the city the way God loves the city? Do you have a heart for the city like God does? Do you love it because it is filled with people who bear the image of God? I mean, think about it. Cities should be, in our minds, they should be the most beautiful places in the world because they're filled with people, right? Cities should be more beautiful than mountains and lakes and beautiful postcards of beaches and oceans, you know, crashing up on shore. Because God's image resides in people. And so if we see people with the same love and the same heart that God has for people, we would look at a photo of a crowd of people and say, that is beautiful. And I was thinking about that this week because I'm like, that's not me. I look at a crowd, I'm like, oh, what does it smell like in that crowd, right? But, but I think there's something that that says about my heart that I don't share God's heart for people. I was thinking about the, all the Apple billboards that are, you know, they're promoting the iPhone 6 and they're saying, you know, here are all these real-life photos that people have taken with the iPhone 6 and they're putting them on billboards. And the thing that they all have in common is that they're beautiful scenes of nature with hardly any people in them. That we're, we're more awestruck by, you know, beautiful sunset. But if we have God's heart for people, shouldn't we be more awestruck by that photo of, of faces and, and crowds of people? We should look at a crowded BART train and not be like, oh, I want to wait for the next train. But like, oh, God's beauty. Like, B.O. and all. Let's bring it on. <laughs> and a little footnote that I need to make here. This is a really expensive place, and I understand that. And a lot of people want to live here, and they can't. And, and we're not going to solve that this morning, trust me. But... There's a conversation that's going on in the city of Albany that the church is actually a part of a group that is pursuing um, the city to, to adopt more affordable housing. And, and I think I was convicted so much by this view that we've got to live in the cities. The cities matter to God so much, but at the same time, people can't afford to live in cities. And so I think we, we really need to be involved in conversations about affordable housing and see, just see what God can bring out of that. And so if, if you want to be involved in that conversation here in Albany, come talk to me after. Um, it's a lot of meetings that are happening talking about stuff. You know, it's just a lot of talk at this point, but hopefully God is going to bring about some change where we can actually afford to live here. Many of you want to stay and you're being driven out. And so footnote over, let's move on. So present people, the first trait of a people in exile, be a present people. And the second trait is that we are to be a productive people. And when you look at the text, there are two ways to understand productivity in the text. And the first one that we're going to look at is just a very surface-level reading, and it's very tied to our presence in the city. And that is that in verse 6, 
being productive means multiplying and having children. It says that here, you know, multiple generations. Kids and then kids' kids. And the application of this is simple. Well, let me say, it's simple for me to say this because I don't have kids. (laughs) But it is clear, I believe, in this passage here that we should not be afraid to have children in the city. Remember, God tells his people to have children in the middle of this wicked place that just conquered them. If you think Berkeley is anti-Christian and unfriendly to raising your kids, think about Babylon that was literally trying to wipe out their religion, literally trying to wipe out their culture, get them to assimilate. And God still says, take wives, have kids, be productive. But the second way to understand productivity, and this is more applicable to us today, is that we multiply, but we multiply by making disciples and by planting more churches, right? Israel, their primary method of growth as the people of God, they were just fruitful and multiplying and having lots of kids, and that's how they grew. But the church, Christianity, our primary method of growth is by people coming to faith. It's through evangelism and conversion. And, and I know maybe this doesn't seem true in America where, where it seems like, Uh, The the church is kind of stagnant, right? There's not a lot of this huge growth. But look at other parts of the world. I mean, childbirth does not explain the explosion of Christianity in in the first century. It certainly doesn't explain the rise of Christianity in in Africa, uh, in in, uh, Asia. It doesn't explain the rise of Christianity in South America. I mean, how does a place like South Korea go from less than 1% Christian to 30% Christian in less than a century? That's not just people having crazy amounts of kids, right? That's just conversion and people coming to faith in Jesus Christ. So, Jeremiah 29's call to to multiply in the city, do not decrease. This drives us to making disciples, not just making babies. As we multiply disciples, we multiply churches, and, and as we grow here at Solano as a local church, we will faithfully plant more churches throughout the Bay Area. And that's why I love Brent a couple weeks ago. He shared part of San Francisco visions for the city was that there would be a local church in every single neighborhood in San Francisco. And I'm looking at that idea and looking at this text, and I'm thinking that vision for San Francisco is a vision that it's a Jeremiah 29 size vision. Right, having a, ch- a church in every single neighborhood, all 40-plus neighborhoods in San Francisco. But we can't just say, well, as we fill cities, as we, as we grow, right, that, that we're accomplishing God's purposes, that as if our mere presence in cities is, that's it, and we do nothing more than that, than just live there, buy houses, plant gardens, eat the food, and live there. Because we see, not just in this text, but in the whole context of Jeremiah, and, and interestingly, Daniel is a, is a you know, chronologically a parallel book, uh, also speaks of King Nebuchadnezzar. So Daniel and Jeremiah, we, we get this from other places, but we see that even while Israel was in exile, they, they retained their worship practices, they retained their, their identity, their commitment to worshiping God and only God, well, they failed that sometimes, but they attempted to be focused on that, and they retained what made them distinct. They remained present in that city, but they kept their distinctions. 
You know, that it's the same idea as, as, you know, kind of going back to that I, uh, dual citizenship, right? That we, we dwell here, we reside here in this world, but our identity, our, our values, our purpose is connected to another place. We live here, but this place isn't our home. So how are we present? How are we productive, but retain that our identity is somewhere else? And that's also coming from this text. It says that we are to be peacemakers. You might be thinking that word is not in the text. We'll get to that. And, and before you say, well, peace, everybody does that. Berkeley's in our backyard. That's like capital of peace, right? But we'll see it's a little bit different according to the values of God here. So we'll get to the last trait now that a people in exile are to be peacemakers. Verse 7 says, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Now the word for welfare is, I mean if you like word studies, if you're one of those people that loves to nerd out on word studies, look up this word here because it is deep and it is rich. The word for welfare here, it comes from the Hebrew word shalom, which many of you have heard, I'm sure. And shalom is typically translated as peace, right? Exactly. Now, peace to most of us conjures up an idea of maybe anti-war, kind of war and peace as their opposites, or maybe it brings up an idea of you have inner peace, right? Mind like water, you know, you are just at peace. You are one with yourself. You are at peace. But, but, but the word shalom is so much bigger than, than anti-violence or inner peace. The word shalom to the biblical writers is a picture of the way things are supposed to be. This is the most simple way to understand it. Shalom is the way it's supposed to be. Shalom means a universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. Shalom is the flourishing in all the categories of life, of, of the economic, social, political, physical, spiritual. It's, it's the, the flourishing of all of those categories. And the biblical picture of shalom is one that every aspect of society is working together, that all those categories are, are working for one another, with one another, serving one another. The, the image I love here is um, from Pastor uh, Tim Keller, pastor in New York City, and he has this image of, of shalom as this tapestry, this beautiful, colorful tapestry. Now, if I took all of these threads and these multiple colors and, and lengths and shapes and all, and I just threw them on the floor, that would be a pile of thread, right? That's not a beautiful tapestry. It's not this amazing fabric. But as the threads are woven in and out and around one another, they become more beautiful. They complement one another more. They're stronger. You, you can't separate them as easily. And, and, you know, say it's this beautiful blanket. It's warmer than knit together than it is just separate threads. You see, God made the world with billions and billions of little entities, but he didn't make them to be just single threads. God created this world that all of these threads would be woven into this fabric together. And that is Shalom. That is the way that, that the world is supposed to be. And, and you and I know that this is not the world we experience, right? 
We walk out this door and there may be glimpses of shalom, but we're not experiencing it on a daily basis. And we know that we long for that peace, that wholeness, that flourishing that says that we, we were made for that, but there's something about it that we can't have it now. You see, God's call for us to be these peacemakers in the city, seeking the shalom of the city, that, that we should be radically committed to the, the success of the Bay Area in, in all of the categories of the Bay Area, from the education side to the you know, physical health to the environment to the politics to the, the economics of this. We should care about all of these things as Christians because we believe that is what God's vision for the perfect world is, is that in his kingdom, all of these things are going to be knit together in that, that harmony as God once intended And so we are called to be peacemakers, but if you forget everything else I've said today and you hear just this one thing, hear this. In order to bring this deep, lasting peace, this holistic shalom that that the Bible gives us a picture of, we must bring the good news of the gospel, the good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ into our cities. Because without the gospel, any sort of peace that we can bring about is only going to be a temporary peace. Or it's only going to be a peace that that misses the big picture. And the Bay Area is a very altruistic place, right? People are committed to causes of peace and justice. and, and, And as Christians, we should be involved in all of those. But we have to include the peace of the gospel in this. In John 14, verse 27, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. See, there's a peace that the world offers, but that is different than the peace that Jesus Christ can offer us. See, the peace that that the world wants us to talk about and wants us to be involved in, that's just scratching at the surface, right? The peace that Jesus offers is the only one that deals with the fundamental problem. You know, this beautiful tapestry of shalom has been ripped because of sin. That it is not this blanket intended to, to, or living out its intended purpose, its original purpose because of sin. But the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, that is the only sort of peace which can address that fundamental problem. The work of Jesus Christ on the cross is the only way that that the shalom will be restored to our cities. It says that Jesus was killed on the cross for our sin and made us at, at peace with God. That is a peace that, you know, if I go to pick up a sign and protest about peace, that doesn't even come close to the peace that Jesus offers me between myself and God. And this is a fascinating part here because only once we encounter the true peace that Jesus offers, only once we get to that peace, that's the only time we can actually begin to seek the shalom of the city. And here's what I mean by that, is that the gospel is actually the motivation and the power behind our ability to be peacemakers. Because the only way that we can seek the welfare of the city is after you have experienced the grace of Jesus Christ and realize that I don't need to get anything from the city. 
The city can't give me anything that is going to be better than what Jesus Christ gives me. There's this beautiful uh, account of early Christianity. Um, sociologist Rodney Stark, he has this book called The Rise of Christianity. He says that part of the explosion of Christianity in the ancient Greco-Roman cities was because of how Christians cared for the sick during these horrible plagues that would pass through the city. And there's some accounts that I was reading of this that are really graphic of people who were, you know, they were half alive still and they were being dragged into the streets and just bodies piled up one on top of the other. And that, that family members and loved ones, they were just leaving because they didn't want to get sick. So they just left their brothers and sisters and parents to literally die in the streets. There's eyewitness accounts of whole houses that everybody had the plague and that they would just be left there and they would all die. But the Christians were the ones who stayed in the city. The Christians were the ones who brought the blankets and they brought the water to people and they were the ones who were nursing people back to health. And there's a lot of accounts where the Christians actually would get the plague themselves and they would die while nursing somebody else back to health. Stark says that they were infected by their neighbors, but they were cheerfully accepting the pain. And then the conclusion of his study uh, and just observation of this phenomenon was that the consequence of all this is that pagan survivors greatly or excuse me, pagan survivors faced greatly increased odds of conversion because of their increased attachments to Christians. That these people would be nursed back to health and they'd look around like, my family's gone. Who is this that nursed me back to health? This is a Christian guy. I have no idea who he is. And do you see how radically different this approach to the city is? That these early Christians, they were not in the cities to build names for themselves, to make money, to get ahead, to climb the ladder. They didn't even need to live, right? They died for their brothers and sisters. And the gospel allows us to approach cities in the same way, with the same freedom. We have been given peace with God through Jesus Christ. There's nothing the city can give us that's better than that. And so do you approach the Bay Area looking for what you can get or what you can give? And we live in arguably the most influential place in the world right now. I'd actually love to argue that with you. I've been thinking a lot about that this week. But between all the booming tech industry in Silicon Valley and the universities, one great one up the street, one less great one down on the peninsula, right? Um, and on the biotech and, and all this booming industry that, that people come to the Bay Area because of what it can give to them. When you approach the city looking for your own welfare or your own peace to make a name for yourself, you will experience pressure and anxiety and exhaustion from this. I mean, think about the pressure of the, the startup culture that we live in, people looking to, to get the next big idea, the next big breakthrough, the next Facebook, the next Google. Think of the pressure that comes from that. And then add on top of that the pressure of, there are people in the Bay Area who are probably a lot better at you at your job, or a lot better than you at your jobs, right? That you come from another city and you're maybe high school, you're top of your class, and you come here and you're just kind of middle of the pack. Or, or you first chair violin in college, and then you come here, and as you're getting off the plane, going through the BART station, there's some person sitting on the street playing Chopin better than you, <laughs> right? You're applying for a job, and you're like, I got two masters. I'm going to get this job, no problem. Well, this person's got three and a PhD, right? This is the world that we live in. 
And we see the only true and lasting peace comes from the grace of God. Only when we have experienced that grace of God will we be able to approach the city and not be crushed by it. Only then will we actually be able to live out this selfless, other-centered view of seeking the welfare of the city because we realize we don't need anything from this place. We could give our lives for this place. God, whatever you need from us, we can give that to you for the sake of the city that you love because you have given us more than we ever need. You pray with me. Our Father, we thank you for this opportunity to live in a place like this. We pray that we would not take our presence here for granted. Pray that that we would see that, that as we dwell here as exiles, our citizenship is elsewhere, yes, but, but you have put us in this place long term. We know that, that you have a purpose for us here. And I pray that, that we would be freed up by your gospel because we don't need anything from the city that we could actually seek the welfare, the shalom, the peace of the place around us. And even if it, it chews us up and spits us out and, and turns its back on us and laughs at us and, and rejects this message that we bring, we know that that can't do anything to separate us from the love that you have given us in Jesus. And so I pray that, that in the power of your spirit, you would make us all secure in that today. And that that would press us into our cities to seek its peace, to seek its welfare. Uh, but the kind that you want us to bring. Pray everything in the good name of Jesus. Amen.